Would you open up your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 7, and let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for the beauty of this day. Thank you for um, the power and the water that we now are all enjoying. Thank you for our creature comforts. Thank you for the privilege to be living in the 21st century when we do have these things available to us. Help us not to take them for granted. Thank you that we all have survived the hurricane and are back together to study your word again. Thank you for the break that I really did need, and you knew it, because this is a difficult teaching lesson this morning. So I pray that everyone will focus, um, because this will be hard, but we need to realize that um, we'll be going over it again and again. So if we get frustrated or confused, there's always the lesson that follows in the email and and repetition. So I just pray that no one will be too frustrated that they'll say, I can't get this. It's too hard and quit. Lord, you know my deepest desire as I pray all the time for the women in these Bible studies is that, first of all, every one of them truly has a personal relationship with you, that she is genuinely born again with a spiritual birth because she has accepted you into her heart as her Lord and Savior, knowing and acknowledging that she's a sinner in great need of the one and only Savior that you have provided for us. And secondly, my desire is that everyone would have total confidence that this book in our laps is your word. Every jot and tittle that we have that confidence and that we pass that confidence on to the next generation because it's being criticized and torn apart in the world around us and we need to know without a shadow of a doubt that we can rely on this book. It is true. And prophecy is one of the greatest proofs, demonstrations that you gave to us that this is your word and that you knew the end from the beginning and you proved it to us, especially through a chapter such as Daniel 7. And now I ask that you would help me speak clearly, but also quickly, because there is so much to cover. And again, help the women to focus on what your word has to say to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have mentioned previously that the book of Daniel was not given to us in chronological order. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, you know, all the way through 12. They're not chronological. Uh, If it was, and you can look at one of the handouts, the one that doesn't have the statue on it, you'll see that if it was given to us in chronological sequence, the chapters would have been like this. One, two, three, four. Now, they are all in order. But then the next chapter, sequentially, would be the one we're going to begin studying this morning. Chapter 7. And then chapter 8. And then sequentially, it would be chapter 5, which remember when we studied chapter 5, which was Belshazzar's feast and the finger writing on the wall? I told you that by the time Daniel had walked into that ballroom, that throne room, and read the the many, many tekel upharsin, he had already had all of the dreams of chapters 7 and 8. So he knew immediately that the Medes and Persians were going to conquer Babylon. He didn't maybe know that night. But he knew that. That's because those visions happened before chapter 5. So it would be 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, 5, then chapter 9. Before chapter 6. So think about this. Chapter 6 was Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. By the time he was thrown into the lion's den as an old man in his 
mid-80s probably, he had already talked to Gabriel several times. He'd had four visions, or like, no, two, two dreams of prophecy, and he had received the great 70 weeks prophecy. So by the time he was thrown in the lion's den, he had great confidence in who his God was, the Most High God. And I don't think we usually think of that, know that. Okay, so it'd be one, two, three, four, seven, eight, five, nine, six. <laughs> it's really confusing, isn't it? And then 10, 11, 12 are again in chronological order. Well, since we know that the Holy Spirit does everything with a specific purpose, he therefore must have had some other organizing principles other than chronology in mind when he inspired Daniel in the way that he should organize his book. So what might those other organizing principles have been? Well, those who take what is called the traditional approach, and that's also on your notes here, those who take the traditional approach to outline the book of Daniel say that there are, and this is most commentaries, they will just take the 12 chapters of Daniel and divide them in half, and they'll say that the first six chapters form the one outline, you know, part one, because basically they are historical narratives. And then they'll say that chapters 7 through 12, the last six chapters, form part two of their outline because they are primarily prophetical. And I don't have a big problem with them doing that. However, it's not quite that clear. It's not quite that distinct because they put chapter 2, I'm just going to give you two examples, all right? They put chapter 2 in their part one, saying it's primarily historical. But do you remember what chapter two is all about? Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the giant statue that gives to us the times of the Gentiles, which is all prophecy, you know, from Babylon all the way to the second coming of Christ. That's pretty, I would, I would say that's prophetical. <laughs> and then if you look at the second half, they put chapter nine in part two, as primarily prophetical, but most of chapter 9 is historical except for a few verses in which we have the great 70 weeks prophecy. So there's, I mean, the whole book is partly historical and partly prophetical, really. So I did not choose to use that approach. I chose instead, and I didn't even know there was a name for it, but when I was originally deciding how to outline the whole book, I came up with this, and then I found out that there was a name for what I had done. It's called the literary approach. Now, I assigned chapter 1 all by itself, part 1 of our whole outline. I just called it Daniel's personal history because it told us how Daniel, as a teenager, was taken from Judah over to Babylon, you know, as a captive by Nebuchadnezzar, and how it came to be that he served in the court of the king. Remember the diet test and all that and Anyway, that that was his personal history. And then what I did is I decided to put chapters 2 to 7 together in part 2 of our basic outline. And then I put chapters 8 through 12 as the third part. And I called the second part Daniel's prophecy um, regarding the Gentile nations. And the third part is Daniel's prophecy regarding Israel. All right? And, as I said, there's a name for that. That is the literary approach to outlining it. Um, So why did I do that? Well, I'm going to give you some reasons. For one reason, 
It's always important for us to see Scripture, to look at Scripture with the, having the eyes of those who first read it. You know, uh, Daniel wrote it for the Jews, his own people. So let's look at it as they would look at it. And how would the Jews of his day have, have looked at his writing, the book of Daniel? And any Gentiles who also read it. And I'm sure that there were many Gentiles who also read his book. Well, they would not have really looked at the book of Daniel in terms of historic or prophetic. I mean, because they were living in the present, and they probably didn't understand all the symbols that we're going to be talking about today, like with leopards and four wings and four heads and lopsided bears and all kinds of things. They wouldn't have understood all that. Even Daniel was confused about it. But um, so I think that what they would have seen very much noticed was the, the obvious shift between Hebrew and Aramaic. Now, do you remember that chapter 1 was written in Hebrew? But then all of a sudden in chapter 2, all the way through to the end of chapter 7, what language did Daniel write in? Aramaic. They would have seen that. I mean, that would have just stood out on their scrolls. (laughs) We don't see it because we have English translation, right? But they would have seen that. And that, to them, to those initial readers, would have been... uh, would have told them that the contents of those chapters, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, formed a unit. And they wouldn't think of putting one chapter of that unit into a different section. Are you following me so far? Because that's one reason I use the literary approach of putting chapter 7 with the last chapters of the book. Another reason is that it distinguishes the two major programs of God in the Old Testament. God has two major programs going on. One program is for the Gentile nations. Jesus called it the times of the Gentiles. And that's what we find in chapters 2 to 7. He also has another program going on, which is his program for Israel. And that's exactly what we will find, what we will talk about in chapters 8 to 12. Now, theologically, this is very important for us to understand so that we don't get caught up in teaching which is very, very prevalent, teaching that replaces Israel with the church. That's called replacement theology. And as I said, it is just out there abundantly. Uh, We don't want to get caught up in that because he is not finished with Israel. The church does not replace Israel. Israel. He has a program for the nations, the Gentiles, and it will end with his second coming. And he has a program for Israel, which will end also with his coming. But he works with one separate from the other. And that's what we're going to find out when we get to the 70 weeks prophecy. See, 70 weeks. And a week was the word Shiva, which means seven years. So it's 490 years that he's had a program for Israel's eventual redemption. Her salvation. She still isn't saved as a nation, is she? No. So he worked exclusively with her during the first 69 weeks of that prophecy. The church was not around. The church was still a mystery. He was working with Israel. But then, uh, got interrupted, there's still seven years left of that prophecy. So, and those, those are going to be the seven years of the tribulation when he will put Israel through the fiery furnace and she'll come out the other end finally 
ready to accept her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But since Israel wasn't in the first 69 weeks, why is she going to be around in the last? I mean, uh, since the church was, did I say Israel? Since the church wasn't in the first 69 weeks, the church isn't going to be around in the last seven weeks of that prophecy, which is very, very strong proof for a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We will be out of here when he begins to finish up his work with Israel. Are you following me still? Okay. All right. So that's my second reason. We need to understand the two distinct programs God has going on. And chapter 7 belongs with the first program, the first, the, the six chapters of 2 to, to 7. Um, now there's a third reason. And you're really going to think I've gone off my rocker with this one. But hang in there with me because this is fun. How many of you have ever heard of a chiasm? A chiasm, I'm sorry. This is from the uh, Greek letter he, but it looks like an X. And if you were in a sorority or what, you wouldn't have been in a fraternity, but if you were the, and it had the, you would have said chi, probably. So I get confused because you, you all would say chiasm. And I think that's what the dictionary says, but I always want to say heism because that's the Greek way. But the letter he or chi looks like an X in our English. All right. So this word chiism comes from the Greek letter X. And it refers to a literary structure. I I asked you a question. How many of you ever heard of it, first of all? Because I'm going to give you an answer to one of your homework questions. Huh? Yeah, from sorority. But have you heard of a chiasm? Okay, not a chasm. Somebody thought they, and it's not a chasm, it's different. Chiasm. All right. Um, So you're going to get an answer to your last question because did you learn anything new? If you didn't know this, you're learning something new right now. All right. A chiasm is a literary device. Uh, It presents a, uh, um, a sequence of ideas and then immediately repeats those ideas, but in reverse order. Like a mirror, a mirror image, or another word would be inversion. It's kind of like a ladder with steps on both sides, okay? Picture a ladder with steps on both sides, or a staircase. I'm kind of making a staircase. So that a person ascends that ladder in the same order that they then descend. Usually, a chiasm is expressed by a series of letters, with each new letter representing a new idea. So you might have letters A, B, B, A. Okay, A is idea, the first idea. B is the second idea. And then those ideas are repeated, but in reverse order. So then you have idea B, and then you have idea A. All right, now this is going to simplify it. I'm going to give you some examples, secular examples. Here's one, and this is on your paper. When the going, that's idea A, gets tough, idea B, then it's reversed. The tough, B, get going, A. So you have A, B, B, A is your chiasm, but when the going gets tough, the tough gets going, get going. Right? Simple. That's a chiasm. Um, Here's another one. By failing, A, to prepare, B, you are preparing B to fail. A. 
Now, they are studying the Bible and finding out that the Bible, and this is so rich and exciting, is full of chiasms. Whole books they are finding out are chiasms. Books in the, in the, like epistles. And lots of the Psalms. It gets complicated because you've got to read the whole Psalm and it might be long, but you find out it kind of starts the way it ends and then it's just fascinating. And they're doing a lot of study on this. But one chiasm, and there were many that Jesus gave, but here's one. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's a chiasm. A, B, B, A. Well, (coughs) the six chapters of Daniel that began with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of chapter 2, you know, the dream of the colossal image, and which end with Daniel's dream of chapter 7 of four beasts, those six chapters, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, are fitted together in very, very amazingly precise order, and what they do is they form three pairs of a definite chiasm. Fascinating. Chapters 2 and 7, and now here you might want to look at that box on the bottom of the page. Chapters 2 and 7, we could assign the letter A. They both contain the overall prophetic outline of the rise and the fall of the successive Gentile kingdoms. You know, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome. That would oppress, you know, have dominion over and persecute and oppress Israel. That is the times of the Gentiles. So in chapter 2, we have the panorama of the times of the Gentiles. Chapter 7, we have the same panorama. And it goes on until Christ's return. Then in chapters 3 and 6, we assign them the letter B. They both concern faithful Israel, true Israel, which consists of all those Jews who really did genuinely have a relationship with God represented by the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. So they both, these chapters, concern faithful Israel who faces severe trials regarding her faith in God as she lives in the times of the Gentiles under the oppression of pagan Gentile kingdoms. Now, in both situations, God's children who represented Israel, they were supernaturally delivered, weren't they? I mean, the three Hebrews came out without even the smell of smoke on them, and Daniel came out of the lion's den without even a tooth mark. So they were supernaturally delivered, just as Israel, corporately, one day will also be supernaturally delivered from the purging flames and the roaring lions of the tribulation. By whom? By Christ himself at his return. Okay, then chapters 4 and 5, we assign them the letter C. They both contained accounts of proud Gentile rulers, kings, who were prophetically warned ahead of time of impending judgment, just like all of the kingdoms of earth have been warned by God of coming judgment, you know, through his Old Testament prophets, Uh, All the way back to, I guess, back to Noah, um, they've been warned of judgments coming, judgments are coming, you know, prophets, and then we had the Lord himself, and then the apostles, and then the church, all the witnesses down through the time, you know, have warned rulers of impending judgment. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was warned via a dream about a mighty tree, 
that fell and became a beast for seven years. And that, of course, was him. That was a warning. In chapter 5, King Belshazzar was warned via a God-written uh, message on the plaster wall above his, his throne. Now, those accounts had different endings, didn't they? But they bear a striking resemblance. And I think this, too, is about history. Some kings will, some rulers, will repent, like Nebuchadnezzar. But those are few and far between. There's usually more bad kings than there are good kings. You know, the Lord sets up the basis of men, doesn't he? Um, but some will repent and have a good ending, like Nebuchadnezzar. Others, like Belshazzar, he did not repent, and therefore, you know, that was his doom. So what we have then, if you look at your picture here, is chapter 2, prophecy of the times of the Gentiles, but a difference, uh, there's two differences in the chapter 2 dream and the chapter 7 not the picture, the box. Okay, the box. Don't look at the picture. You'll be looking at the picture the whole rest of the list. <laughs> All right. Um, chapter 2 is the prophecy of the times of the Gentiles, but it's given from man's perspective. I'll talk about that in a minute. Then chapter 3, div- divine deliverance of God's servants. You know, corporate Israel represented by the three in the fiery furnace. Then chapter 4, God's judgment on a proud Gentile king who happened to be Nebuchadnezzar. Then we go down the ladder, okay? Now we're going back down. Chapter 5, again, is letter C, God's judgment on proud Gentile king. This time it was Belshazzar. Then chapter 6, again a B, divine deliverance of God's servant, corporate Israel, represented by Daniel in the lion's den. And then chapter 7, back to A, prophecy of the times of the Gentiles, except the difference is that this is given from God's perspective. So did you get all that? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? Now, do you think Daniel knew he was doing that? I do not think so. That was all God-inspired. That was the Holy Spirit. That's like poetry. It's just so amazing. The scripture, there's no end to it. It's got all these hidden little things like that. So you learn something new. Isn't that exciting? Just think how impressed your friends and husbands and children are going to be when you say, do you know what a chiasm is? No. I have no idea. All right. Something else to notice is that chapter chapter 7 describes the same, as I just said, it describes the same prophetic panorama of history as the chapter 2 dream did. We're going to see four beasts coming out of the the sea, the great sea, and they correspond to the, the head of gold, you know, the silver breast and arms and all that of the statue. Except what we have what is called progressive Revelation. That's what the whole Bible is. Progressive revelation. You start out with just Genesis 3.15. You know, God's going to send Savior, the seed of the woman, and as you go, you learn more and more information. So in chapter 7, we get more information about the times of the Gentiles, and this is particularly true with regard to parts of the yet unfulfilled fourth kingdom. The uh, kingdom that was represented in the statue by the the toes, the feet and toes of iron mixed with brittle clay. And it's particularly true with regard to the um, the, uh, one that comes out of that ten-toed kingdom. Now, we didn't see this in the statue. There's no wart on any of those toes. 
right? No protruding wart. And that would be a good symbol for the Antichrist. But <laughs> a wart. But on the, um, on the corresponding fourth beast, see him below? He's pretty ugly, isn't he? You see ten horns, just that, those correspond to the ten toes. And out of the middle of those ten horns, what comes up? Not a wart, but a little horn, they call it in this chapter. A little horn. And who does he picture? Who is he? He is the Antichrist. Now, we had learned nothing about him in the chapter 2 dream. But now we're going to have progressive revelation. And then as we get into chapters 8 to 12, we're going to find out more and more about this little horn, the Antichrist. And we're going to find more out more about this yet future ten-horned, ten-toed coming last kingdom, which I think is being prepared in the world today, the revived form of the Roman Empire. We're going to find out more about that. But we get the fullest explanation of these things, these yet future things, when we come into the New Testament and the Lord Jesus Speaking to his apostles while he was yet alive, gave them the Olivet Discourse. That tells us about that last seven years of the great 70 weeks prophecy. It's all about the tribulation and his second coming. And then where do we get the fullest information on this whole period of time? The book of Revelation, yes. So by the time we come to the end of the Bible, we have everything we need to know about where we're going. You know that? We don't need to fear the coming election. We don't need to fear what's going on. Everything is right on course, just as God had said. And, um, you know, we'll see today that all these other parts of the image and all these other beasts have been fulfilled exactly as God had said. So this coming last beast and the ten horns and the little horn and all that, they're going to come to pass also exactly as he said. So we can have confidence. We know where we're going and we know who wins. <laughs> All right, so this that was the introduction. Now here's the lesson. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8, which I've divided in two parts. We're going to look at Daniel's introduction, verses 1 to 3, and then the dreadful invasion, verses 4 to 8. So let's begin with his introduction, verses 1 to 3. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> in the first year of Belshazzar, see, we're back in the reign of Belshazzar. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. He wrote it down right away so he wouldn't forget it, and he summarized it. Verse 2, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Each one was different than the other one. All right, the setting for the dream was that it was the first year of the reign of King King Belshazzar, which makes it, if you want to write it down, 553 B.C. We know that for sure. He reigned for 14 years. The first year of his reign was 553 B.C. This was almost 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar's dream of chapter 2. 50 years between chapter 2 and chapter 7. It was also 14 years before the finger writing on the wall, which was the last night of Belshazzar's reign. Now, since this dream and three other dreams, divine revelations, that Daniel is going to receive 
in the upcoming chapters. And now, so far, Daniel had never received a dream of his own, had he? He'd only interpreted dreams of others. But now he gets, he'll be getting four of his own. Since this happened to him directly, he begins to write in the first person. So you'll notice he says, I, I, Daniel. The first dream, this one, must have brought back very vivid memories to him, back to when he was just a teenager and he had received the shocking news that Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree to have all of his wise men cut into pieces and their houses made into dunghills. Remember that? Because he, what was it all about? It was all about a dream. It was all about a dream. And when Daniel received that news, it wasn't good because he and his three friends had just been made wise men, hadn't they? So the, you know, the death decree included him. And so he went, they all went on their knees and they asked God to reveal to them not just the interpretation of the dream, but he needed to know the dream because Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't tell anybody what the dream was. And he received those, you know, in, in answer to his humble prayer and presented it to the king. And in the process, he saved many lives, didn't he? Including his own. <laughs> now, some 50 years later, he has his own dream of four successive great beasts that arise out of this sea. And that would have caused him, I'm sure this dream caused him, to immediately recognize the similarities of his dream with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The primary difference, as I said earlier, was that of perspective. You see, um, the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, this was before his conversion, which was at the end of his life. But when he received his dream, he was still a pagan, you know, idolater. He saw the course of Gentile kingdoms as the world sees them, which is that they are almost godlike in their power, you know, with all their massive armies and their glorious monuments and their dazzling treasures and their impressive cities. You know, the mighty powers of the world are almost something that men like to put up on a pedestal and worship. And isn't that exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did? Remember chapter 3? He was the head of gold of the statue, and he didn't like that. He wanted to be the whole statue. So he made a giant image of gold and had everybody bow down before it. And three wouldn't, and that's why we had the fiery furnace episode. But that's how the world looks at superpowers, you know, as, as just mighty and wonderful. That's man's perspective. That's the humanistic view of the times of the Gentiles. And, of course, the Antichrist is going to do the same thing. He'll be the last king of the times of the Gentiles, and just as the first king, he too will set up an image of himself and have mandatory worship, won't he? Or death. Well, on the other hand, God's prophetic dream that was given to his faithful servant, Daniel, presented the same course of Gentile history except from the theological perspective. From, from the way that God sees the true nature of the succession of Gentile king, kingdoms. And to him, guess what? A lot different picture. To him, they are like a parade of bloodthirsty beasts of prey. Increasingly dreadful to behold in all of their physical appetites and in their animosity toward him and toward his people, and their willful blindness to the truth, and their enslavement, and their brutality toward their fellow man. Isn't that still going on in the world today? 
I can ne- I just cannot comprehend how men can be so cruel to their fellow man. Can you? Can you understand that? Just all the awful things that goes on. I don't know how God has been so long-suffering with what he has seen over the many, many, many centuries of humanity and their terrible behavior. They are exactly like beasts without the new birth. We all are like beasts without the new heart. All right, so that was the setting. Then he went on to talk about the striving. And the striving consists of three parts. Four winds, a great sea, and four beasts. So what he, what he tells us he beheld in the first vision of his dream. Now notice in verse 1, the dream is given in singular, isn't it? He had a dream, and then he talks about visions. What he did is he went, down, he went to bed that night, fell asleep, and he had one giant dream. I don't know, maybe it took all night. <laughs> but within that dream, he had a series of visions. So dream is singular, visions are plural. And he, he beheld four winds, four winds that raged on the great sea and produced, as those winds, just like Matthew, the hurricane, you know, on the, on the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, stirring up the ocean, Out of that great sea came four great beasts. That's what he saw. That's the sum of it. So what we want to do is identify, to begin with, the four winds. Who or what were the four winds of the heaven? Well, we know that they weren't literal winds. How do we know that? Well, because winds do not blow over the entire earth at the same time from Babylon to the second coming. You think? I mean, we have a still day today. Are there any winds blowing? So they cannot be literal winds because these blow for that whole period of time. All right? So they're not literal winds. The, the Aramaic word for winds is ruach. It's the same in Hebrew. And it, it can be translated as either winds or breath. Or it has another translation, which is Spirit. Like a spirit being. Um, Now, in Revelation 7, verse 1, John speaks about, in his vision, he talks about four winds who hold back, are held back for a while by God's holy angels. Those four winds are held by God's holy angels from doing harm on the earth. This is in the tribulation. And one angel says, hold them back until we seal 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. You know, seal them so they're protected from all the stuff that's going to go on in earth after chapter 7. So, the winds of both of these passages, um, I believe, refer to spirits. Not to literal wind, but to spirits. So what we have is the four winds of Daniel's dream striving upon the great sea until these dreadful beasts emerge from it. And we have the four winds of John's vision bringing great harm to the earth. But first of all, they're, they're restrained for a while by God's holy angels. So I ask you, if these are spirits, do you think they're Holy angels, spirits, or fallen angel spirits, demons? Hmm? 
fallen. That's, that's what I tend to think. I can't be dogmatic about it, but it looks to me like they are fallen spirits, um, demons, evil spirits, fallen angels. Now, it is a main theme in the book of Daniel, and we'll see this particularly when we get to chapter 9, and it is also a main theme in the book of Revelation that there is an ongoing spiritual warfare in the atmospheric heavens. You know, Satan is the prince of the power of what? The air and darkness, but he's also the prince of the air. And this warfare is going on between the angels of God and the fallen angels of Satan. As each one of those armies seek to control the course of history. Now, even though the outcome of this ongoing long battle, this spiritual warfare, is never up to speculation or doubt because we know who wins. We know who wins. And it's God, because he is creator and Satan is only a created being. God wins. No doubt it does not mean, however, it doesn't mean that the fallen angels don't have power. They do have power. So in these last days, and I think you can just turn the TV on and see this, <laughs> the focus of Satan is to so corrupt the nations that they eventually will surrender their power into the hands of a very charismatic human who will eventually, about three and a half years into the tribulation, be possessed by none other than Satan himself. So, even if even if the, the, the four winds do, as we all think they do, if they do represent evil spirits, yet we have to acknowledge this. Everything that Satan does and everything his host of demonic and human followers do is only by way of God's permissive will. You know, he can even use evil to work his good. And he, and he is using Satan and his forces to eventually work out his ultimate purposes and plans, which are for good and for his glory. Well, next, all right, so maybe the four winds are demonic spirits stirring up the great seas. But what is the great sea? Well, many times in the scripture, the great sea actually refers to the Mediterranean Sea. However, in this case, I don't tend to go that way, uh, and I could be wrong, but <clears throat> the the powers, I mean, the, the kingdoms that arise were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. It came out of this, this uh, great sea, and they came from different locations. They didn't come out of the Mediterranean. Now, all of their boundaries did touch the Mediterranean, but, you know, Babylon was way to the east of the Med, and Medo-Persia was north of that. So, I would say that their one commonality is that they all emerge out of the sea of of ungodly humanity. And that's actually verified in verse 17. If you look over at verse 17, it says that the beasts, these beasts represent kings, four kings, and we know the four kings also represent their kingdoms, but it says that they arise out of the what? The earth. They arise out of the earth. So the picture of four winds of the heaven striving upon the great sea of this world, this, you know, world system, this whole Babylonian world system, that really presents an appropriate depiction of the history of the Gentile nations that have oppressed the people of God. It, is, it has been and it continues to be one of constant strife, demonic strife, against God. 
The world system is against God. And one of the great things, you know, one day this earth is going to be burned up by the face of the one who sits at the great white throne judgment. It's just going to be his face that burns up this earth. Did you know that? Read it carefully in Revelation 21. And it's going to be replaced by a new earth. A brand new earth. All things will be new. No sin. One of the great things about the new earth is it says that there will no longer be any sea. You know why? Not really speaking of water, but speaking about Satan's dominion. The Babylonian world system will be gone. His dominion will be gone forever. There will be no more sea in the new earth. Hallelujah, right? Let me get an amen. Amen. (laughs) Well, before we get into his description now of uh, the beasts, and he's doing the best he can as he's seeing these things. Have you ever had a dream and you try to explain it to somebody and it's really cuckoo, right? And you say, well, I'm going to make it. So he's trying to describe the beasts of his dream. Um, But before I get to that, I want to point out again, verse 17, which is part of the interpretation of this dream, tells us that these four great beasts do symbolize four kings. And we know that the kings are synonymous with their kingdoms. And so really we could say that the four beasts are four kingdoms that will arise during the times of the Gentiles. And that's actually said in verse 23 and 24. It says that the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom. Therefore, we know that the other three beasts are also kingdoms. And that, uh, that so they're, they're kingdoms, and you already knew that. Now, each of the beasts of prey who briefly, just briefly rush across the stage of Earth's history, only to be conquered by a more vicious beast that comes up behind them and gobbles them up, um, correspond, each of them correspond to the various body parts and elements of the Colossus of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So from now on, have this in front of you and look at it. Several ladies told me yesterday this really helped them understand. Without this, you'd really be confused. <laughs> so keep looking at it. Um, we're going to discuss the, the various animals, and I've called them an eagle-winged lion, then a lopsided bear, a four-headed leopard, and a three-staged fourth beast. And you'll understand that when we get to it. So let's begin by looking at the eagle-winged lion of verse 4. Daniel says, The first, the first of the great beasts, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So, the first beast to arise out of the stirred up, troubled waters of humanity was like a lion with eagle's wings. Now, both creatures are regal. Both of them are majestic. They are imperial. They are royal. Because a lion is the king of the beasts, of the animal world, right? Beasts of the field. And an eagle is the king of the fowl of the air. And that easily connects with Nebuchadnezzar, who was called a king of kings. Remember that in chapter 2, verse 37? And he was pictured in the image by what? The head of gold. Now, gold, you could call gold the king of, of the metals or elements. 
And a head, a head is definitely the most royal part of your body, isn't it? <laughs> Not really your toes, it's your head. Uh, so that connects. We, connect, we see that connection there. These are both parallel, and they speak of the same thing. Babylon, specifically Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar was Babylon. Because once he died, Babylon did not last very long at all. <clears throat> he was the first beastly kingdom of the times of the Gentiles, because he's the one who began the oppression of Israel by marching over there and taking Israel in three captivities captive. So he was the head of the times of the Gentiles. Babylon, now a lion is very appropriate for a symbol of Babylon. Because Babylon, remember, was full of lions. Those mosaic tiles with gold uh, lions and some of the lions and the tiles had wings on them. You know what kind of wings they were? They were eagle's wings. And if you went into the palace, on bo- and you can Google this and see them. They still have them. There were on either side of the palace gates were two giant lions... Huge, with eagle's wings. On their coins, they had lions with eagle's wings. So, and we know that this first one was definitely Babylon, because remember, um, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Well, if you're the head of gold, you're also the lion with eagle's wings. So there's that connection. Well, as he continued to behold the eagle-winged lion, what did he see happen with those wings? They were plucked, like you pluck a turkey or a chicken. The wings were just plucked right off of it, so the lion could no longer fly. Ever see a flying lion? <laughs> but this lion couldn't fly anymore, so it was just, you know, on four, his four feet, his four legs. But then it says he went from a four-legged lion to a two-legged man. Weird. You know, this reminds me of the mighty fallen tree that became a beast. Of the field, eating grass. All right, this, what is all this speaking of? It's speaking about Nebuchadnezzar and what happened to him. Uh, it depicts the time of his humbling seven-year experience when he did, you know, the mighty tree fell. <clears throat> and he got lycanthropy and actually thought he was a beast and crawled around. And, and amazing, not only did he... Um, Eat grass like an ox, but remember what, how it described his hair? As eagle's feathers. There's the connection. And his fingernails became like eagle's claws. So he traded in his eagle's wings for eagle hair and eagle nails. <laughs> really? <laughs> Crazy. Um, <clears throat> and yet when it all ended, when the beastly effects of his pride left him, And he came to his senses and realized he wasn't so great after all and that none of it was of him. It was all of God. And he humbled himself before the Most High God. He became what a true man, the only creature created in the image of God, he became what a true man should be. And what is that? A humble, surrendered worshiper of God. So that's what this part of the verse is all about. Well, the Babylonian Empire itself, um, it came to the forefront of world history with roaring speed as as an eagle-winged lion. I mean, Babylon wasn't there one day, and the next day it was just like, conquered, you know, the big part of the known world back then. It came in with rushing speed under the conquests of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the man. 
But it only lasted about 80 years. Babylon didn't even last one century. Like Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's wings were plucked from her when it was conquered by the Medo-Persians in the space of just one night, the night of that final drunken feast. And unfortunately for the kingdom, it didn't have the happy ending that Nebuchadnezzar had, did it? The kingdom didn't repent under its arrogant, foolish, uh, last king, Belshazzar. And therefore, the kingdom, we could say, did not receive the heart of a man. Makes me wonder, does America still have the heart of a man? Like we did with under our founding fathers? Well, let's look at the lopsided bear, verse 5. <clears throat> and behold, you'll notice how many times Daniel says, Behold, or lo, look at that. It's like he's in his dream and he's going, Whoa, look at that, I can't believe that. I saw eagle-winged lion, and now here's a bear, a lopsided bear. He says, Behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side. That's why I call it lopsided. And it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. Three ribs in its teeth. And they. Who's they? Now, if you go back to see who that pronoun refers to, You have to go all the way back up to 2, verse 2, and it's the four winds. It's the only precedent for it. So again, because the they say unto the bear, rise, devour much flesh, I think that might be proof that it could be evil spirits saying devour much flesh. All right, so Daniel continues to behold the series of his visions, of his dream, and he sees this bear that's raised up on one side. Now, we should have it a little higher in this picture, but at least he has one paw lifted. You see him? One paw lifted. And that is a perfect representation of the Medo-Persian Empire because it is a historical fact that the Persians became more powerful than the Medes in their federated union. Now, at first, the Medes were more powerful than the the Persians. And when when Darius was around, the Medes were more powerful. That's why you see written in Daniel the law of the Medes and the Persians. The Medes comes first. But guess what? If you read the book of Esther, which was about 50 years later, Cyrus kind of switched things around. The Persians became stronger. So when you read Esther, you read about the law of the Persians and the Medes. You see how specific and accurate God is in everything? Down to little changes in words. But the Persians became stronger. So that corresponds, really, to the right arm. You know, on the statue, this is the breast and arms of silver. Now, the Medes were all about silver. They could care less about gold, but they paid their taxes with silver, and we talked about that. But they were into silver, so that's very appropriate. The, The two arms represent the Medes and the Persians, And the right arm, usually, some of you are left-handed, but usually the right arm is stronger. So you see the lopsided bear, the right arm stronger. And uh, we're going to have another picture in Chapter 8 of the Medo-Persian Empire with a ram. You see him down there? A ram with two horns? Guess what? One horn is higher than the other. All three of those represent the Medo-Persian Empire. The breast and arms, the bear, and the ram. Um, And we know this because Daniel has another dream two years after this dream 
And Gabriel tells him that the ram with two horns are Medo-Persia, represents Medo-Persia. So that's clear. I mean, history tells us it was the Medes and Persians that conquered Babylon, and Gabriel, God's messenger, tells us. So we know who all this represents. And the Medo-Persian Empire was definitely like a bear, powerful and fierce like a bear, but less majestic and less swift than a lion. I mean, which is faster, a bear or a lion? Especially an eagle-winged lion. A bear, I mean, when you picture a bear, don't you picture something kind of fat? Big fat bear? I mean, you know, he's powerful, but he's, he's so heavy that he's slower. Now, I, I guess they can go pretty fast, but he's definitely slower than an eagle-winged lion. The greater size of the bear to the lion pictures the fact that the Medo-Persian Empire was bigger than the Babylonian Empire. If you look at a map, it covered more territory than Babylon did. Um, And its huge armies, I mean, a massive, like two million soldiers in its army, they were able to easily overwhelm, to devour their enemies just by their sheer numbers. And yet, remember... um, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar that this next empire would be inferior. He called it inferior. That was in chapter 2, verse 39. Why was it inferior? Well, because its kings did not exercise the same autocratic power as the Babylonian monarchs. Now, do you think that if Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree, like he did to cut people up, that he could change that decree? Did he? Yes, he was an absolute monarch. But as we found out with Darius and uh, Ahasuerus in the days of Esther, they couldn't undo their own laws, could they? They, had, they were inferior in their power. But the kingdom was also inferior to Babylon in its wealth and in its splendor and in its unity. It didn't just consist of the Babylonians, it was the Medes and the Persians. So it was inferior in that way. <clears throat> now the three ribs in the bear's teeth represent um, the three smaller empires that were devoured by the bear, by the Medes and the Persians. And this would be the Lydian Empire, which was basically Asia Minor, where Turkey is today. They also conquered, of course, Babylon and Egypt. All that represented by those three um, ribs in its mouth. Now remember that from Medo-Persia, Actually, anything after Babylon was all prophetic. This is the first year of the reign of Belshazzar when he gets this dream about the bear. Medo-Persia wasn't even anything to be considered seriously at that time. This was 14 years before Medo-Persia conquered Babylon. So everything was prophecy. And it was very, very accurately fulfilled, wasn't it? Remember that as we go through this. Now, the Medo-Persian Empire lasted about 200 years, which was longer than Babylon, um, but they were then conquered by the Greeks. Even though the Medes and the Persians had a much larger army than the Greeks, the Greeks had much better armor. Now, remember, the Medes and Persians were running around with tunics and fluffy little pants, and soft turbans, right? (laughs) 
But the Greeks come along, you know, my ancestors, and they got helmets of brass, they've got shields of brass, they got swords of brass, they've got armor of brass, right? So who do you think conquered who? The Greeks conquered the Medes and the Persians. And now we look to the... Um, <clears throat> and remember, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the Greeks are represented by brass, by bronze, which was so appropriate. The bronze belly, speaking of their appetite, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I still have that problem, and the thighs, <coughs> the lust of the flesh. Um, but they're represented by the... The belly and the thighs on that statue, and here it's pictured by a four-winged, four-headed leopard. So let's look at verse 6. After this I beheld, and lo, that's like behold, lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Who gave this beast its dominion? Who sets up kings and takes them down? God. Who gave him the dominion? Who gives, you know, who's going to be the next president? Really? Go vote, but it's up to God. He sets them up. He takes them down. Doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. All right. History confirms that Greece, under the military genius of who? Alexander the Great, was the empire that did indeed conquer the Medes and the Persians as swiftly as a four-winged leopard. Now, a leopard is a fast animal, faster than a lion, Um, but with wings on it, four wings, it's really fast. And Alexander, oh my goodness, he conquered the vast territory from Greece all the way to India. That was an unprecedented 14,000 miles that he conquered in about 13 years. That was really fast. So, you know, a four-winged leopard, that does it. That speaks of him. So Babylon, the eagle-winged lion, had conquered swiftly, but a leopard with four wings is twice as fast, isn't it? One only had two wings. The other had four wings. Long before Greece was even a factor to be considered on the world stage as a superpower. I mean, when Daniel got this prophecy in 553 B.C., the Greeks were nothing but a bunch of tribal city-states feuding with one another, fighting with, I mean, just nobodies. Um, But not only did this leopard, this four-winged leopard, perfectly match Alexander, his conquests, And his early death, we'll talk about that, and his replacement, but it also matched the description of the he-goat. Oh, here we go. Another symbol of Alexander and the Greeks, which comes in chapter 8 with a he-goat who has a notable horn coming out of the top of his head. One big horn. Now, you know, a horn speaks of power. Um, So he's got this one big horn, and the horn gets broken, and it's replaced with four horns. All that is just perfect, a perfect prophecy of what would happen with Greece. Um, And then we have divine confirmation again from Gabriel that the goat is Greece, does represent the Greek empire. And this is in chapter 8 somewhere. I didn't write the verse down here. Um, And we also are told that that notable horn coming out of the he-goat's head, that that's its first king, who is Alexander. 
Huh? Is it 8, 5? Okay, verse 5. So it's confirmed. We know again that this third empire was Greece. The Greek empire is viewed in two stages in Daniel's dream. The first stage is pictured by the four wings of the leopard. It represents the united stage of the Greek empire under Alexander the Great's leadership. Okay, so the leopard with four wings, he's the united empire. As long as Alexander was alive, it was united. Okay? The second stage of the Greek empire is represented by the four heads of the leopard and also by the four horns of the he-goat that replace the notable horn when it's broken. That's the second stage of the Greek empire. You see, with Alexander's death, in, in 323 B.C., he was only 33 years of age when he died. Don't know for sure how he died, but most think he uh, choked to death on his own vomit, that he was drunk, and he, that's how he died. Um, but after his death, there followed a struggle among his four generals. He had two sons, but they weren't old enough to take his place. So his four generals fought for leadership, and they're represented by the four heads of the leopard and the four horns of the he-goat. And I give you their names in your notes and what territories they covered, but they were Cassander, Lysimachus, uh, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Well, the most powerful of those four eventually became General Seleucus and General Ptolemy. One was over Syria, the other one was Egypt. And they, I am really going to confuse you, but they are what's represented. This is the two stages of the Greek Empire. I guess you could actually say there's three stages of the Greek Empire. When they're united, when there's four, and then when it comes down to two, they're represented by the upper thighs, the silver, the, the brazen thighs. Remember the legs? The legs of iron, but the thighs are still grease. Okay, and we're going to hear about these guys again, Seleucus and Ptolemy, because one is called, in chapter 11, talking about chapter 11, one is called the king of the north, and the other is called the king of the south. So we'll be talking about them again, so don't worry your little heads about it. But anyhow, it's interesting. Uh, So there are basically three stages of the Greek Empire, and they're all represented in all these pictures. Again, it's just fascinating. The Greek Empire lasted about 200 years, just like the Medo-Persian, before it was swallowed up by the fourth beast. And the fourth beast is called the dreadful, terrifying beast, and he expanded beyond lands conquered by all three of the previous beasts. You know the Romans conquered two 0.5 million square miles of territory. No wonder it's called a a dreadful beast here. So let's look at verses 7 and 8. I'm getting close to finishing, all right? If you have to go, go. But I want to get this all on the tape. All right, verses 7 and 8. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. Now what does the iron there match up with? the iron legs of the statue, and wasn't Rome known to rule with a rod of iron? We talked about iron perfectly picturing Rome. 
It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. Now, you see the little space in your Bible between the word it and and? Between it and and is the church age. (laughs) The whole church age in that little white space where that semicolon is. And it had ten horns. This is coming now into the yet future. We have not yet gotten to this part in our in history. It had ten horns. That's what made it diverse, is it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. A little horn comes up, And he gets rid of three of the other ten horns. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man. And a mouth speaking great things, which means blasphemous things. Who is this little horn? The Antichrist, exactly. All right. Um, There are actually, I told you there's progressive revelation from Daniel's, Daniel's dream from Nebuchadnezzar. We didn't hear anything in Nebuchadnezzar's dream about this little horn. Remember I said no wart on the toes. So this is all new. And he, of course, is the last and by far the worst king of the times of the Gentiles that this world is ever going to see. So in Daniel's vision of the, this fourth beast, there are three stages of it. We have the iron tooth stage, which corresponds to ancient Rome. You know, it said that it was dreadful and exceeding strong and terrible and had great iron teeth. If you look over at verse 19, he goes on and says, says that the teeth are of iron and his nails of brass. I mean, it's just awful. But that speaks about ancient Rome. And iron, you know, is perfect for Rome. We talked about that when we talked about chapter 2. So that's one stage of the final fourth empire, is what we could call the iron tooth stage. Now, um, you know about Rome. Uh, she didn't even, well, she lasted longer than any of them. Babylon didn't even last a century. The other two, Medo-Persian Greece, lasted about 200 years. But Rome never really was conquered, was she? She's kind of going to revive again in the end times. Um, but we know that the ten horn stage has never happened because there were never ten kings in Rome or ten Caesars ruling at one time. And the ten horns come out of the fourth beast. So there's a connection with Rome. Just as the toes and the feet come out of the legs of iron. So there is a connection with Rome. This is why somehow or another in the end times there's going to be a ten nation confederacy of some sort. Whether these are geopolitical sections of the world and you know that the world has been divided into ten geopolitical sections. You know that the trend is to make this world a one world with no boundaries and no borders or anything. That's what they want to do. That is going to happen. Face it. Under the Antichrist it's going to happen. One world. Um... But it's going to be somehow connected with ancient Rome. The, the leaders probably come out of the area of Europe, ancient Rome. 
It might, the U.N. might be involved. We don't know. We speculate. We don't know yet because it hasn't happened. But that's the first stage. And then, this, I mean, the first stage is the iron tooth stage. The second stage is yet future, and it's what I call the ten-horned stage. Now, remember, um, Daniel, I have to say this because this is going to answer one of your homework questions, all right? I'll say this and then pretty much close up. But Daniel got this prophecy in 553 B.C. Rome didn't become a Roman Empire until 27 B.C. All right? Now, that means that even a forgery Daniel, you know, the critics hate Daniel because he's got so much prophecy that, that has come to pass. That's true. So they have to tear apart the book of Daniel, don't they? Because they don't believe in prophecy and in supernatural and all that. So they attack the book of Daniel. And what they do here, they really have a problem because they said Daniel wasn't really written in the 5th century B.C. It was written in the 2nd century B.C. They push it up, you know, by three or 400 years. But they have a problem still with Rome because when Daniel got this dream and wrote it down, That was still, even if it was a forgerer doing all this, it was still 150 years before Rome came into being. You get it? Now, it really was written 400 years before Rome came to be Rome as an empire. But when they push it up to the second century, it's still 150 years ahead of time. Now, would you like to predict what's going to happen 150 years from now? I mean, you would be wrong. <laughs> well, you could be right if you based it on the Bible. Um, we'll be in the millennial kingdom. Um, so what they do, what the critics do, is they change the four beasts. Because they've got to get rid of Rome. If they don't get rid of Rome, it's, it is predictive prophecy. It's prophecy. Okay, so what they do is the four beasts, then they say, are Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, and Greece. No Rome. No Rome. But you know what they do when they do that? They mess up all the pictures. <laughs> really bad. I mean, the iron, the iron becomes the brass of Greece. And Greece did, the Greeks didn't know anything about iron. The, the, the bronze of, of Greece becomes the silver of the Persians. And the Persians were all about silver, not about bronze. I mean, they just mess up the whole thing. And the two arms, you know, and, and the, the lopsided bear and the ram with one, that, that all becomes the Persians. The Persians weren't lopsided. It was the Medes. And the, so you see what I'm saying? It just messes up God's symbolism. But that's what they will do. They'll do crazy things. They'll stand on their head just to say, well, this can't be true. This can't be prophecy. Well, I got news for you. It is. All right, so the third stage, we have the iron tooth stage, and then we have the ten horn stage, and the last stage is the little horn stage, and that will be when the Antichrist comes to power after he knocks out three of the co-reigning ten. You know, first of all, the ten kings will be ruling at one time, and he'll be a little guy, little horn, not much power. He'll just be 11th along with the other ten, but... Somewhere he gets possessed by Satan, knocks out three of the other kings, and he takes over, and then all hell breaks out, doesn't it? The last three and a half years of the tribulation. Okay, are you confused? Are you thoroughly confused? Or are you... 
You will get your notes. Maybe you already got them. I think she already sent them out, so you should have the notes when you get home. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for your word. And how, after a lesson like this, I do want to thank you for the message of the gospel because it is so simple that anyone can understand it, even a child. The gospel message that there is redemption and there is hope in a better life because of the sacrifice of your son for our sins. And thank you, Father, for giving us a task until he comes back to get us, as he promised, to take us with you. He has given us a task, and that is to occupy until he comes. We have purpose. And we have to admit that it does indeed get gloomy living in this world where Satan is the prince. And we get weary as we walk against the ever-increasing flood of people heading the wrong direction against you and against us. So we ask that you would grant us the grace and the strength to do your will even when we do grow weary. And forgive us when we fall short. And as darkness is falling over America and over so much of this world, as the rich and the powerful and the corrupt are gaining more riches and more power and growing more corrupt, and as we see injustice spreading like a cancer, and as we see so many people sadly, oh, hear about it every day, people who are abandoning the faith and ignoring the word of God and doing whatever is right in their own eyes, yet, as we are repeatedly reminded in the book of Daniel, It is all exactly as you had foretold. The ancient prophecies are coming to pass. All the apostasy, the corruption, the persecution, the darkness that was foretold to take place in these last days. And we are seeing it play out in our time. And that simply reaffirms that you are indeed sovereign God and all is exactly on schedule and we need to keep our eyes looking up. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we cannot wait. Mm. And we pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.